0: Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast today. We are starting a new sermon series uh, here at our church called Called In and Called Out, and I'll talk about that in a second. But before I get into that, I'm going to read part of the scripture that we'll be reading in our worship service on Sunday. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's actually quite long. Uh, We're going to be reading from the book of Revelation. Actually, this whole series will be about the book of Revelation. And this week we are reading chapters 2 and 3. And I'm going to read just uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 1 and going through verse 17. I'll explain a little bit about the context of this in a moment. But first, this is uh, starting from Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God." And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and come to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, this devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life." Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where, where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have the few things against you, You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches." everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So I think every parent probably has a favorite and least favorite book that they read to their children as they are growing up. And one of my favorites uh, was the series called Olivia, which is about a a human pig, a pig who was uh, fashioned as a little girl named Olivia. All of these books are fairly short, but I find them really funny and thoughtful. And really, who doesn't like an eight-year-old who has a poster of Eleanor Roosevelt on her wall? One of the reasons I like Olivia is her determination to be an individual, to be her own person. So on Sunday, I'm going to put up a couple of examples up on the screen. And so from the very first book, Olivia... Uh, One of the scenes starts off that says, after a nice breakfast, it's time to get dressed. Olivia has to wear this really boring uniform. And then it shows, of course, uh, Olivia holding up this uniform that she has to wear. And then the next page says, of course, you could always accessorize. And Olivia has done all kinds of things. She's put bows on. She's put on some funky socks in order to make herself stand out. And then another book that I'm going to be talking about, this one uh, is called Olivia and the Missing Toy. And again, we find out that Olivia is going to be on the soccer team. And she says, Mommy, can you make me a red soccer shirt like this one, please? And she points out how she wants her mom to make the shirt. But her mother says, but then you'll look different from everyone else on the team. That's the point, Olivia says. There's a period that ends that sentence. That's the point. I always like to think that it's an exclamation point for Olivia to say definitively, I want to look different from everyone else on my team. And again, that's one of the reasons I love Livia. When I was a youth leader working with senior high youth many years ago, one year we handed out T-shirts, uh, and on the back of the shirt, on the bottom of the shirt, said Romans 12.2, and it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good acceptable, and perfect. And on the back of this t-shirt were all kinds of drawings of different kinds of fish. But then another fish, which was going the opposite way, this is the fish that many Christians use in early Christianity to signify uh, the new faith. And I think many Christians now see that fish as a symbol of the faith. And that was the thing, that was the fish that's going the opposite way to try to convey to these youth, do not be conformed to this world. How do you stay true to who you are? How do you stay true to your faith in a world that at every turn tries to conform you to the, quote, norms of society? Well, as I noted earlier, we're starting a new sermon series called Called In, Called Out. And every year we do a sermon series at Urban Village that's connected to our desire to be what we call a church without walls, specifically uh, where we reflect on not only to be a diverse church, but also an anti-racist church, and I'll explain about that in a little bit. So this particular sermon series, we're looking at the book of Revelation uh, as we look at um, how we are called to be this church uh, that lives out to go against, I think, and believe the what norms the society calls us to do and to be. So we're going to talk about Revelation for a moment. And as we get into Revelation, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you may have tried to read through it sometimes or as you flip through it. And Revelation may seem pretty intimidating to you. For the fans of Harry Potter, you know when Rubius Hagrid was the professor of Care of Magical Creatures and he assigned them a book called The Monster Book of Monsters. And students always had a hard time Uh, Opening this book because essentially this monster book would try to snap at, even bite the hand of anyone who would try to open it. And I think perhaps people feel the same way when it comes to Revelation. They dare not open it up because they think that it will bite their hand off. And understandably, when you read the Revelation, in fact, it seems like a monster book of monsters because there are all kinds of different creatures that we read about in that passage or in that book. And so Revelation is intimidating to some. People may not even want to go near it. If you've ever heard of the Reformation figure Martin Luther, he didn't even want Revelation in the Bible. But I think it still can be helpful for us for lots of different reasons, and we're going to be exploring that uh, in this sermon series. So Revelation is usually assigned to a literary genre called apocalypse. The biblical scholar Bruce Metzger says and notes that the name for this genre, apocalypse, comes from Revelation 1-1, which uses the Greek word apocalypsis, revelation, to designate the contents of the book. An apocalypse is usually a first-person narrative where the author relates one or more visions about the future, or the heavenly world, or both. And as we go through Revelation over these next four weeks, we'll be introduced to a lot of symbolic language, and it's important. Some people, you probably have heard, look at Revelation, and they try to take this symbolic language and use it literally, but that's not the intent. We read about Revelation, we read about the author of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 9, a man named John, who's writing from an island called Patmos. Patmos was an island 37 miles southwest of a city called Ephesus, which we read about in today's passage. And the Roman Empire used this island... Uh, scholars believe is a place for political banishment. So we have this man named John who's having these visions and he's writing uh, these words in this revelation, this apocalyptic literature. At the very beginning of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, John is writing a message or rather he's writing seven messages to seven different churches in what is today Turkey, but in then was known as, as Asia Minor. And I'll put a link up on the Podbean page so you can get a look at what the land was like at that time. So John is writing messages to these seven different churches. And he's, in the one hand, he is writing to each of them with a specific uh, message in mind, writing to each of them with their context and the kind of city that they're in and the kind of things that they are facing and so there's specific instructions to each of them so today in the passage that i read we read the first 3 messages to these 3 different churches in these 3 different cities but i think it can also be helpful to look at all 7 of these messages together i also should mention that i'm i was helped immensely by a person who goes to urban village he actually goes to our Hyde Park Woodlawn site uh, jeff myers he's a phd student in, on the book of Revelation, he's taking a look at the book of Revelation and and nonviolence and how it's portrayed in Revelation. So I'm uh, very indebted to him and the work that he's done on this. And he mentions and notes that it's it's helpful to look at these uh, seven messages together rather than just focusing in them on one on one on one. So one possibility in looking at all of these messages is to focus on what each community is due in order to emerge victorious, or to conquer or to overcome those are different words that are used. It's notable to say that none of these ways to emerge to conquer uses violence. Most of the advice is repeated in more than one message. So, for example, four of the churches are urged to repent. Four are told to be strong or hold fast. One of the things that as I read through them too, I would imagine that all seven are facing pressure to conform to the wider culture or adopt teachings other than the gospel of Jesus. They're being constantly tested and tempted. And John is trying to tell them, be faithful. Do not lose your first love. One example of this is found in Revelation 2.15. Again, the passage says, So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So these were individuals who, a sect, who were eating food sacrificed to idols and were known for sexual immorality. So we see here, John knows about these people are being tempted by these other sects, these other groups that are putting pressure on them to turn away from the gospel and turn toward a different way of living their life. So John uses different ways of encouraging, chastising, affirming all of these things, so that they'll listen to the Spirit and not abandon their first love, Christ, despite all the temptations that they face. So, as we look at our worlds today, as our churches and our own lives, certainly we can find many examples of the temptations that we face to conform to societal "quote unquote" norms in our own world. You probably feel it every day. We see it through the media. We see it through marketing. We see it through social media. All of these sometimes blatant, sometimes not so much ways to conform to what society wants. Often that message is capitalism. And today, and throughout this sermon series, we are looking at this through our lens of wanting to be an anti-racist church. We're looking at the lens of the temptations of our society through this lens and talking about, about race, I should note and define one more time what anti-racism is. Sometimes that word is thrown around and we don't exactly know what it means. Here's a definition that we're working with at Urban Village. Anti-racism is the active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, policies, practices, and attitudes so that power is redistributed and shared equitably when it comes to this particular issue race and when we talk about and think about conformity i think we see examples in our society all the time of certain things that people are supposed to believe without really looking underneath the surface under the surface Uh, we see this uh, just recently at the debate about whether NFL players should kneel during the national anthem. And you see many different messages of people, like literally people in the stands saying, conform, honor the troops, kneel at the temple of nationalism. And it gets to the point too, where people keep saying that they're protesting the national anthem or that they're protesting the flag and they're not doing that at all. They're wanting people to actually look at racial injustices that are being done in our world. And yet this conformity, you have to stand, it's the flag. And so all these pressures to to go along with the crowd in these ways. And so we see that here in this instance, all around us, pressures to conform to what society says, just like those in the early churches felt that pressure to conform to the way society should be. So what about the temptation for churches? What kind of churches do we face, especially, or even progressive ones, quote-unquote progressive churches? All the awful things that happened in Charlottesville a few weeks ago, and I saw people talking about how proud they were of their churches for speaking out against what had happened in Charlottesville, and that's all well and good. I'm glad people spoke up, but I would have to guess that probably not a whole lot was said in the weeks after that one, and the week after that one, too. It's fine and good, of course, to speak out against white supremacy. But then how often do churches really then begin to look at their own structures, at what's underneath their own way of doing church What's unspoken, I think, the message is don't go too far. It's fine to speak out against white supremacy. and We can talk about diversity and all of that, but don't talk about structures. Don't talk about processes. Don't talk about who's in leadership. And that, not that Urban Village is perfect at this, but this is what we are trying to do, too. We are trying to explore and look underneath the surface. And when we do that, we're kind of picking at the scabs a little. And sometimes and often that's not very pretty. But we believe just like the message to John from John to those early churches to do not conform where is your first love and because we believe in the radical inclusivity and just gospel of Jesus Christ we believe we are called to continue to search and look to see what about our own structures what about our own policies our own systems our own attitudes our own practices It's fine to speak out one Sunday against white supremacy, but then to take that next step and the step after that. So one of the things that we've been going through this uh, anti-racism audit at Urban Village over the last uh, 12 plus months, and we've been learning a lot, I've been on the team, and we've been going through anti-racism training in our church, and we've been talking about lots of different things, one of which, uh, two other definitions I want to give you. One is called internalized racist oppression. And then the other is internalized racist superiority. So IRO, internalized racist oppression, says this oppression is a complex, multi generational socialization process that teaches people of color to believe, accept, and live out negative societal definitions of self and to fit into and live out inferior societal roles. And then internalized racist. Superiority says this again: a complex, multi generational socialization process that teaches white people of color wh- white people to believe, accept, and live out superior societal definitions of self, and to fit into and live out superior societal roles. These behaviors define and normalize the race construct and its outcome: white supremacy. I want to take a look at some of these things through uh, historical uh, or something that happened in our own history here in this country that happened more than 50 years ago. And it ties in too that a, a book that I've been reading and a walk that I did a few weeks ago too. Uh, my dad had recommended to me the book, The Blood of Emmett Till. Hopefully many of you have heard of who Emmett Till is, a uh, 14-year-old uh, in the mid-1950s who was accused of whistling at a white woman. Uh, and then, because of that, was taken from the home that he was staying in brutally uh, murdered, and his body was found in the river uh, not long after that. He was taken back to chicago his His mother decided for an open casket she wanted the press to take pictures so that the world could see what they had done to her son i think that 's the story that most of us know, but in reading the book, there was a lot that i didn 't know, and I think IRO and IRS in some ways are played out a little bit in this story. So after they found his body, and this is one thing that I didn't know, after they found his body, there was immediate pressure to bury him in Mississippi, to bury him immediately. There was a man named Sheriff Strider, and he had taken authority over the case that was confirmed. And people talked about how scared they were of Sheriff Strider. You know, we talk about internalized racist superiority. I think probably for a lot of people in power in Mississippi in the 1950s, it wasn't so internal. It was external. People saying publicly that the white race is superior. And so Sheriff Strider, as a way to literally bury this story, bury what had happened, wanted Emmett buried immediately, did not want to send his body back to Chicago, which is where he lived. And as he did so, the first person that he reached reached out to was a, a head of a black funeral home. And the man in the black funeral home agreed to do it. And this is where I wonder, where we see an example perhaps too of internal racist inferiority, or I'm sorry, internalized racist oppression. For this man, this black head of this funeral home, who had been living in this segregated society, this oppressive society for so long, I have little doubt probably had this sense to believe and accept and live out a negative societal definition of self and to live out inferior societal roles. So on the one hand, perhaps that was playing on in his own mind, and the other too, I mean, he probably feared for his life if he didn't obey what the sheriff was saying. And they had taken Emmett's body to this gravesite in Mississippi. And then what happened next is where I found inspiration. Somebody found out that Emmett was going to be buried, and this cousin of Emmett's had called his mother, and this mother contacted Emmett's mother, Mamie. Mamie, in turn, then called her uncle in Sumner, Mississippi, and told him, in, no, in, in so many words, that body, that body ain't going in the ground. And so after a lot of back and forth, finally convinced another undertaker to prepare the body without telling the sheriff, they put Emmett's body into the seal of the casket. And we see throughout all, so many steps of people telling Mamie Till, don't open, don't look, don't see what happened to your son. They put a seal on the casket so that they would not open to see what Emmett, and as soon as the body arrived in Chicago, and she wanted to see, and people kept telling Mamie, don't let anybody see what's in that box. It's sealed with the state of Mississippi. We, we said that we wouldn't do that. And she fought with a funeral director in Chicago. And in the book, it says that Mamie says, I told them that if I had to take a hammer and open that box myself, it was going to be opened. You see, I didn't sign any papers, and I dare them to sue me. Let them come to Chicago and sue me. And again, funeral Uh, people working at funeral homes in Chicago, tried to convince her, well, at least let us touch Emmett up. And she kept saying, no, let the people see what they did to my boy. She was not living out any kind of oppression, internalized racist oppression. She knew what she wanted. She wanted the world to see what happened to her son. And the author of the book, Blood of Emmett Till, said perhaps no photograph in history can lay claim to a comparable impact in black America. All in reading this book had such an effect on me. And I thought about that. I put this on Facebook. I learned that his funeral home is not far from where I live. It's on about 4,000, the 4,000 block of South State Street. So I went down there and I walked to where Emmett is buried and where his mother is buried too, to pay my own respects. Emma was fourteen when he was when he was killed, and it's fourteen miles from his church, from the church to where he is buried. And so I walked that, just as a way to think and reflect and pray, and think about all the things that we've been talking about in Chicago. And I kept praying for the courage of Mamie Till, because there are so many forces that are tempting churches, individuals, groups, organizations, and systems to just go along with what society has deemed the way it should be in America to continue to live into internalized racist superiority and oppression. Even people who would deny that this happens, even deny that they're racist. But they don't want to do the hard work of looking within themselves. That's what we're trying to do as a church. We are trying to have the courage of Mamie Till, the courage that God gives to us, the courage that John was trying to convey to those churches, the courage to turn away, to repent, to turn away from the societal pressures, to just go along with what society wants, and instead to turn away from that and be a voice for justice, to be a voice that speaks out against racism and the insidious ways that it lives in our society. That's what we are trying to do at Urban Village. And I pray, friends, that you will do the same in your own lives, to begin to look underneath the surface. Pray for the courage that John wanted those early churches to have, for the courage that Mamie Till had to. May this be the legacy that you and I can live out in our own way. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, I will be back next week with uh, another reflection. And as always, you can reach out to me, Chris at urbanvillagechurch.org. And on Twitter, I'm at Christian Kuhn. You can go to my website, christiankuhn.com, and read about my book and the other podcast that I do called Failing Boldly. And uh, you can reach out to me in any of those ways. And so until next week, friends, may the peace of Christ be with you.